0: Hey, everybody. It's Manoush here. So I've been hosting the TED Radio Hour for about two months now, loving every minute. And I have a quick personal favor to ask you. If you've been enjoying the show, spending time with me, learning about some amazing ideas, could you please take just a moment and write a review or rate us on Apple Podcasts? This way, more people know that we're having a good time over here and we're also learning a lot. Maybe they'll come join us, which would be so awesome, because good ideas are worth spreading, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you so, so much. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers And ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And for the past couple months, while we've all been doing our part to keep ourselves and others safe, we've also had some time to think about what we value most.
1: I'm walking through the woods near my home, just a few minutes walk away from the village that I live in in Southern England.
0: And for a lot of us, including Tom Rivett Karnak, it's planet Earth.
1: This is a beautiful forest, it's early May. You can see the light coming through the trees.
0: Tom is an expert in climate change policy. Back in 2015, he helped bring together nearly 200 countries to support the Paris Agreement, which was the UN deal to curb greenhouse gas emissions. But of course, right now, Tom's been spending his time closer to home.
1: One of the amazing things about this forest over the last few weeks, of course, is that it's deserted. Now there's no one here.
0: For many of us, the pandemic marks the first time the whole planet is having one shared experience. Maybe the first time we feel like we are one species. And Tom says this moment is an opportunity.
1: None of us who are alive right now have ever lived through anything like this. We are all facing one challenge, which is how we collectively going to deal with this moment. Now, the best outcome of this is that we as humanity remember that we can no longer afford the luxury of feeling powerless.
0: Like the rest of the world, the TED stage is now happening remotely. So Tom Rivett-Karnak delivered his talk from those woods near his home.
1: Right now, we are coming through one of the most challenging periods in the lives of most of us. The global pandemic has been frightening whether personal tragedy has been involved or not. But it has also shaken our belief that we are powerless in the face of great change. In the space of a few weeks, we mobilized to the point where half of humanity took drastic action to protect the most vulnerable.
2: Friday morning, the 20th, (sighs) since my shift yesterday, I came back in to find the emergency department full.
0: It's like a war room in the respiratory report room. So many people trying to figure out what assignment to take. I'm tired. (laughs) Just been running
1: around. Unfortunately, it's not over. We're still going up. And so I'm still going back to work tomorrow. These people are caregivers and nurses who have been helping humanity face the coronavirus COVID-19. Now, that's interesting because it shows us that humans are capable of taking dedicated and sustained action even when they can't control the outcome. But it leaves us with another challenge. The climate crisis. Because make no mistake, the climate crisis will be orders of magnitude worse than the pandemic if we do not take the action that we can still take to avert the tragedy that we see coming towards us.
0: There's a line in your TED talk um, that kind of hit me like a brick wall where you warn us that the climate crisis will be worse than the pandemic yeah um, you know we're we're just so in the pandemic right now that it's hard to take the longer view on that. make the case for why we should
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean one simple answer to that question is that the climate crisis will be permanent. The pandemic is you know, a major global emergency that we are right in the throes of right now. But we will find a vaccine. We are learning about this virus all the time. We are working on social measures to reduce its spread. We're working on vaccines. Those will take months or maybe years, but we'll come to that point and we'll come through it. And world will return to some form of normality, although it will probably look quite different. In the climate emergency, the climate crisis, if we allow ourselves to pass these tipping points after which we begin to lose control of the climate system itself because certain things about the planet change, like when the sea ice reduces, it exposes the dark water underneath. That dark water absorbs more sunlight, which leads to more sea ice loss. So you get these feedback loops where it becomes runaway, so you lose control of the climate system. If we get to that point, we can't find a cure for that. That's just the planet flipping into a different, hotter state.
0: Before the pandemic, climate change and our struggle to do anything about it was on a lot of our minds, like a consistent dull ache. But now, coping with COVID-19 and fighting the climate crisis, well, it can feel emotionally overwhelming. But climate change isn't going away. And like Tom said, the way communities have reacted to the pandemic might prove we can come together and fight an invisible threat And so on the show today, can we make the psychological shift we need to stop global warming and capitalise on this moment?
1: Coronavirus and climate, there there are many ways in which they're, they're connected. They're both global challenges that are coming at us at this moment. They both require us to step up as individuals and as society. They require us to replenish our trust in our, our faith and science. They require us to collaborate and they make us realize that we are only as strong as the weakest member of our societies. And the other thing that they do is they require us to take strong action without being able to control the outcome no one individual can take action that can prevent the spread of coronavirus. And in my talk, I talk about some of these healthcare workers. And what was kind of instructive to me as I looked at it was I realized that as long as you feel like you're, you're, what you're doing has meaning and purpose, you'll take action even if you can't control the outcome. That's why those nurses, you know, so in such an inspiring way take such action put themselves in such risks to do all these different things That's also the story of transformation of the world going back generations in 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 times of great Challenge and conflict and difficulty people couldn't control that But they felt a sense of purpose and meaning in engaging with the issue So let me give you a historical story to explain it Poland September 1939 The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest. In the late 1930s, the people of Britain would do anything to avoid facing the reality that Hitler would stop at nothing to conquer Europe. Along a dozen roads, the iron cross and the eagle wave in the breeze. Freedom of speech? Now that meant the concentration camp. Torture. Death. They were terrified of Nazi aggression and would do anything to avoid facing that reality. In the end, the reality broke through. Churchill is remembered for many things and not all of them positive. But what he did in those early days of the war was he changed the story the people of Britain told themselves about what they were doing and what was to come. We shall go on to the end. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. An island alone, a country that would fight them on the beaches, a country that would never surrender. He wasn't promising an easy ride. He wasn't promising victory. He was promising blood, toil, tears and sweat. That's literally what he said, but he was promising meaning. He was promising something that people could get engaged in, and as a result, be part of a great shared endeavour. And that's what motivated people to action. It's not actually the sense of an easy victory. And I mean, I live in the west of England, and dotted along the river, right by my house, is a series of little brick buildings. And they were constructed by the old men of the village during the war, because they wanted to feel like they were part of this great shared endeavour. I mean, the Germans were never going to come up the river Froome to attack Britain, right? But they felt like they wanted to be part of this great shared endeavour. So they built these things to contribute and everybody felt that what they were doing was part of this purposeful shared mission. Now that doesn't mean it was always easy, right? Or it doesn't mean that every day was filled with joy, but it does mean that it provided a North Star for them. Now on climate, we've allowed ourselves to not feel purposeful, to not feel meaningful, to have the sense of, if I can't control it all myself, therefore the meaning and the purpose drains away. And that is a major mistake. We can do big things together. It's not beyond our ability to cooperate, to have a shared objective, to work together towards it, to yes, have national interest, but also have international solidarity. Um, and we can live enormously purposeful and meaningful lives right now by deciding to take action on these collective issues and mm. thereby transforming the world through our own actions.
0: I mean, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that we need a leader who can reframe the narrative around climate change, around things that are outside of our control.
1: I'm not actually saying that. I can see why you would draw that conclusion from what I've said. I mean, I think what's needed is an animating story that we can get behind and that provides meaning for us. There's probably going to be multiple different stories for different people and different ages and different industries Mm -hmm. and different countries. What I'm saying is we can choose what story that is. And we can actually choose to have a more animating narrative that moves us towards action. I mean, if you look at the components of this crisis, right, it is overwhelming odds. It is clock ticking down. It is great peril if we fail. Mm. It's all the ingredients of a great adventure story. We're either going to do this or we're not, but no one else is going to do it. And if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us, right? And to me, that's kind of the beginning of a really inspiring Narrative. I want to do that. I want Mm -hmm. to be part of the generation that faced this challenge, decided it wasn't too much for us, and then we'll always be the generation that was able to do this. Mm. That's still a chance for us, right?
0: Yeah, but what do we need to be that generation? Like, how do we even
3: start motivating ourselves to do this?
1: Optimism, gritty,
3: determined, stubborn optimism. And when I say stubborn optimism, what I mean is relentless, right? It's a relentless choice.
0: This is Cristiana Figueres. Tom worked with her on U.N. efforts to curb climate change. And she says that to keep making progress, we need stubborn optimism.
3: It's a relentless commitment. It's a gritty determination to move forward no matter what. Now, Manouche, I am a woman and I'm a Latin American woman. And Latin American women are known for being exaggerated and very happy with the use of hyperbole. This is no hyperbole. Mm. We are now at the most critical crossroads in the history of humanity. Now, you may say, oh my God, that paralyzes me with fear. Yes. Well, okay, wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad that you're paralyzed with fear. But here's the thing it is always at the moments of greatest darkness that we actually need the brightest light.
0: When we come back, Christiana describes how she realized that she had no choice but to be optimistic. I'm Manoush Zomorodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that looks out for surprise credit card charges like overtipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, then sends an alert to your phone and helps if you need to fix them. Another way they're watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. Thanks also to NordVPN. Online security is increasingly important, but you may not know where to start. Here comes NordVPN, which secures your internet traffic with just a click. It's an extremely intuitive and easy to use app which can secure 6 devices at the same time on every major platform. Visit nordvpn.com/npr and use the code NPR to receive 70% off and 1 month free.
1: On Bullseye this week, Tina Fey, on creating unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 30
2: Rock, and being the best at everything.
3: There was a window of time when we would just go to awards things and pick up our prizes and party with the people from Mad Men.
1: That's this week on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zomorodi. On the show today, can we make the psychological shift we need to fight climate change? Before the break, Tom Rivet Karnak and Christiana Figueres told us that optimism, stubborn optimism, is the key to how we approach global warming.
3: It is always at the moments of greatest darkness that we actually need the brightest light. But Christiana
0: didn't always feel this way. Back in 2010, she was appointed as the executive Executive
3: secretary Secretary of of the United Nations. Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is quite a mouthful. Mm. Um, Basically what that means is that... Basically what that
0: means is that she had to bring 195 countries to a consensus on how to manage climate change.
3: It was actually an impossible task. Mm. It was a very doom and gloom mood, a sense of overwhelm, a sense of helplessness.
0: That's because just six months earlier, the negotiations for a global climate agreement had
3: totally broken down. People had tried to come to an agreement in Copenhagen and failed, and they had concluded it's too late anyway to address climate change. We're just going to have to accept the ravages that it's going to bring.
0: And so this was the mood when you gave what I think was your first press conference on the job.
3: Yeah, the the press conference that I remember best. (laughs) Mm. I've done many press conferences, uh, but this is the one that I remember best because it was just very painful on my first press conference,
0: a journalist asked, Cristiana Figueres picks up the story from the TED stage.
3: Um, Ms. Figueres, do you think that a global agreement is ever going to be possible? And without engaging brain, I heard me utter, not in my lifetime. Well, you can imagine the faces of my press team who were horrified at this crazy Costa Rican woman who was their new boss. And I was horrified too. Now, I wasn't horrified at me because I'm kind of used to myself. I was actually horrified at the consequences of what I had just said. Horrified because I thought, okay, well that expresses the mood, but is that what we really want for our future generations? Are we gonna give up now just because this was an incredible attempt and we failed? Is that a reason to give up and then to condemn future generations to the ravages that will be brought upon them? And I, 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 you know, very quickly I said, no, you know, I can't do that. There's no way that I could live with myself knowing that I had just been given responsibility. What was I supposed to do? Just hold failure in my hands for several years and just admire the failure, admire the problem. It was just not something that I could do. It was just not morally responsible. It was frankly a horrible moment for me. And I thought, well, no, hang on, hang on. Impossible is not a fact. It's an attitude. It's only an attitude. And I decided right then and there that I was going to change my attitude and I was going to help the world change its attitude
0: on climate change. So it kind of sounds like you walk off the stage and you're thinking to yourself like, you know, we don't have a choice here. We have to keep going no matter what happens. Children are depending on us.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And so it was definitely, I think, my maternal instincts, thinking certainly of my two little daughters, but frankly, of your daughters as well, right? Mm. Uh, And of everybody's children, because climate change is something that affects everyone. And it especially affects people who we don't know, either in the present or in the future. And I just felt this huge moral responsibility fully realizing that i did not have a blessed idea of what we could do to change it so you have this this epiphany this moment and then
0: what exactly were you committing yourself to
3: yeah i actually call it stubborn optimism and for me optimism is actually more of a choice It's a moral choice. Mm. So then, you know, I have to change my attitude first. And then I have to figure out how to be contagious about that. I didn't have a blessed idea of how we were going to get that. But if I could harness collective wisdom, we would be able to figure that out. Mm -hmm.
0: But as you say, for you, like, it it, it wasn't enough that you felt this. You you had to corral everyone. What's
3: one person going to do? if it comes to something as global as addressing climate change obviously it's never one individual mm. far from it. It has to be a critical mass of people who bring their ingenuity, their innovation, their creative thinking and their solution development together. If we're going to do this it has to be an everyone in effort. So we went from something that was impossible in 2009 mm-hmm. to something that was okay maybe, maybe possible um, over the years we Moved from possible to uh, likely, and then eventually in 2015 to unstoppable. So that arc of possibility is what eventually led to the Paris Agreement. There is no way you can deliver victory without optimism. And here I use optimism as a very simple word, but let's understand it in its broader sense. Let's understand it as courage hope, trust, solidarity, the fundamental belief that we humans can come together and can help each other to better the fate of mankind. Then you see that governments were able to go to Paris and adopt the Paris Agreement. Okay, so
0: optimism clearly played a pretty big part in reaching an agreement in Paris. But, you know, let's, let's fast forward to 2016, Donald Trump is elected president, and he announced that the U.S. was leaving the Paris Agreement, rolling back regulations. It's, it's hard to figure this out because, I mean, I know reducing emissions is possible. The science says so. And we have even seen it since the pandemic began. But it also feels like so often politics is the reason that optimism can be so hard
3: to muster, right? Right. Well, but then we haven't understood my definition of optimism. Mm. Because optimism is not the result of the reality. It's a choice. It is an intentional choice. Mm. We have to be able to say, okay, there are going to be barriers. In this case, the U.S. White House. Okay. But that's not going to be a permanent event in our life. That is an event. And at some point, that is going to change. Don't confuse the waves with the current. If you live in the ocean, you see tides. There's a low tide and there's a high tide. And those are constant, in constant following of each other. So we have a low tide in the White House right now. We also have a high tide in many other places of the world. But let's not confuse that with the current. Mm. The current that we have, which is the underlying trajectory of the global economy, independent of the political tides, is definitely toward decarbonization. It's not just possible, you said that it's possible. Honestly, it's necessary. Mm. It's the only thing that we can actually accept. Neither our parents nor our children have the capacity. Our parents did not have it, and for our children, it will be too late. So if today, collectively, we stay in the grief and the despair and the helplessness, we will never get out of this black box. That's the point. We are at the moment in which we need the brightest light.
0: Hmm. Something very powerful happened to me when I read your book called The Future We Choose. And I mean, I hear all the doomsday scenarios and it completely freaks me out. But what you did in the book that was different to me was you laid out what it would be like to actually live in a carbon-neutral, regenerative world. And so I wonder if you could do that. What does it look like when we see companies and governments and investors and citizens coming together in a way we've never seen before, beyond nation-states, but as
3: a species? Well, yes, we actually set out those two futures that we're choosing between. And it's important to understand that under a business-as-usual scenario, if we continue to do what we're doing, we are possibly choosing the world of doom and gloom, which we describe in the book. Instead of possibly choosing, if we actively, intentionally choose to do differently, then we create a future that is very different from the doom and gloom. So both are possible right now, but none of them is currently a destiny. Neither of them. We have to choose which destiny do we want. The other world that honestly was a little bit more difficult to write, because there's more information about the doom and gloom than there is about the new and much better world. And we wanted to write a scenario that is actually science-based. But picture this, picture that you live in a city, that you walk out of your house and actually the air is fresh and moist. Why? Because humanity has actually done a mega planting of trees across the entire world. And we have replenished the forest cover that had been lost. And that forest cover is actually helping us to clean the air and to bring temperatures down. We will have uh, regenerated soils, and we will have regenerated the oceans. Now, you have oceans that are plentiful and you have soils that are fertile and producing on less land, they're producing much more food. Imagine that you walk out of your home and instead of getting into your singly owned gas guzzling vehicle, you actually have a smart vehicle that comes around, it picks you up and of course it's an electric clean vehicle. And it takes you to wherever you want to go no parking and all of that area that used to be for parking of all of these stupid vehicles is actually now transformed into gardens Mm. imagine that all of the buildings will have on the roof they will either have solar panels for electricity or they will have food gardens imagine that every single surface is actually going to be capturing sunlight to produce the energy for that building, or it's going to be contributing to cleaning the air and bringing down the temperature. This sounds wonderful. It sounds like utopia, Christiana. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it sounds like utopia, but the fact is we're on the way toward many of those things. We're totally on the way toward And electric, smart transportation. We are totally on the way of smart design of cities. It is not science fiction. If you look for examples of any of this, it's all already underway. Hmm. Listening to you, you are
0: full of energy and conviction and, yes, optimism. But surely there must have been moments in the last couple of years, especially since Paris, where you have had to... Collect yourself and check
3: your doubts and really recommit to this climate optimism. Absolutely. I've had moments of deep anger and frustration and, you know, used very strong language, cussing language (laughs) at, at points because it makes me so angry that we are so stuck in a reality of the past and we see ourselves as being victims of the past as though we could do nothing about it. And that is totally untrue. We're not victims of the past. We are creators and co-creators of the future. So yes, I do get angry. And yes, I do get upset. And I use the energy of that anger to actually move forward. Mm. Because if I stay in that hole of anger and despair and grief, then I don't do anything. If you're angry, if you're despairing, of whatever, what that is, is Energy. The only thing you have to do is harvest that energy and change the characteristic of it. And then you're contributing to the solution.
0: That's Christiana Figueres. She and Tom Rivet Karnak are co authors of the book, The Future We Choose Surviving the Climate Crisis. They also host a podcast together called Outrage and Optimism. You can see both of their talks at TED.com. so, what does stubborn optimism actually look like? Like, what does it mean to be part of the solution? Well, for some young people, Hi guys. Ooh, it's about focusing their entire lives on the issue of climate change.
4: Corey Johnson wants to be with us. We're asking them to give
3: one billion to basically to help for a more sustainable job.
0: Like the students in Beacon High School's environmental club in New York City.
3: So we wanted to start with a little debrief. I think we're just gonna kind of go over like what we've been doing and/or what you've been doing, if it was anything related to the environment, you know, dying uh, that you want to share. So if
0: anyone we wants went to, to visit them a couple months ago, back when the kids were still in school. So talk to me about when you first started hearing about climate change and things like that, right? Like what what were you, what were you feeling?
3: Um, for me, what freaked me out the most was in science class, just seeing pictures. Of how much glaciers were disappearing. And to me that was the moment where I was really like, Wow, this is happening rapidly. It is truly horrifying to me. It's something that sits, you know, on me and, and makes me feel like I can't like I can't get up. And I think it's even more like a weight
4: on our shoulders that we have to be the ones to deal with it because we can't really like go back and fix our parents and grandparents' mistakes.
1: It's like how unfair is it to us that the future that we're given is like, they got to live their lives, pursue their career paths, get married, have kids. And then you think about your future and your life, and it's like all of us have talked with each other about wanting to be good dads and wanting our grandchildren to be able to like live in a safe, healthy world. And then we have to fight to
0: break even, I guess
3: by the time we even get to the positions that these uh, adults in power are in it's frankly just going to be too late we need adults who have means to support the youth join us and and like come out with us and organize with us recycle
0: take time out of your day to research like the issues find a local town hall that you can sit in and like just educate yourself
4: what really helped me what really calmed me down was like coming to these meetings and, and just talking to other people who care about the same things that I care about and who are fighting for the same cause.
3: We really all have to come together and really all have to put our heads together and our bodies together and and take this on together because it seems like such an insurmountable thing, and it, it is, but the, the only chance we have is if we really come together and really listen to the science and read the science and believe it.
0: It has to be an everyday thing and a lot of people don't realize That in order to make actual change, you have to keep keep going. And now that the Beacon High School activists are all stuck at home... They're organizing online with other young people as part of the youth climate movement. Hey, long time no see, everyone. Hey, gee,
3: it's nice to see you again.
0: You as well. I and I am talking about crazy. countless Slack channels, Zoom calls. I think you're muted. Hours <laughs> and hours of planning virtual events. Party with oh, the. This away. is a
1: party. This is a, this is a huge party. This is the biggest party we've had all day.
0: Like Earth Day in April. I'm so glad everyone can make it to talk with us today. So why don't we just get started? They organized three days of talks, workshops, performances, and conversations with policymakers.
2: Hello, everybody. We are here with the icon, Alexandria <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, Mayor
1: Michael Tubbs from Stockton, California. So great to be in conversation with you.
4: How do you see the linkage between the coronavirus pandemic and the climate crisis pandemic? How is quarantine? Your activism? Well, that's a a great question.
0: I guess I'll start. My
4: hope is that people. These are really
0: good points that I will keep in mind so that. One Beacon High School student at the
4: center of all this is Shia Bastida. My name is Shia Bastida, and I am a 17 year old climate justice activist. I know that a lot of people look at me in the hallways and say, like, oh, they're the climate girl or whatever. But what I'm seeing is that we inspire others through action and through example because there is
0: no hope without action. In just a minute, Chia Bastida talks about staying optimistic while dealing with the pressures on young climate activists. On the show today, the mindset to face the climate crisis. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Stay with us.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org.
2: Making something original and creative is hard, but sustaining that is even harder. I'm Guy Raz from How I Built This, and I just want to say congratulations to NPR's Planet Money for 1,000 episodes, and it's still so smart and surprising and delightful as ever. Just check out Planet Money's episode 1,000 celebration
3: to see what I mean.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoucheh Zamarodi. On the show today, can we make the psychological shift we need to fight climate change? We're just hearing from Shia Bastida about all the work that goes into helping lead the youth climate movement. It's a lot of pressure for a 17-year-old.
4: There was a long time where I would have three or four calls a day. Mm -hmm. And I would run to meetings and I would, you know, do my homework late at night and sleep for four hours and get on calls because I needed to call Germany so I had to get on a call in the middle of the night. And I was just exhausting myself because I thought that the world was on my shoulders. And the beauty of this movement is that there are so many kids who are willing to do work that you don't have to do all the work yourself. You can ask others to go to the meeting. You can ask others to run the social media. And sharing the responsibility makes us way stronger than trying to do everything yourself.
0: means you have to share the limelight, though, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You're okay with that? Mm -hmm. Even, like, I don't know, in the era of Instagram?
4: Oh, like, honestly, the more people who get a platform for climate activism, the better. Because this is something that is going to last for a very long time. This fight is going to last a very long time. So we can't get too tired and then put it in this little box in our minds and think that we can just keep on going like we are. And the way in which I deal with it is... What I want to see the world do, I do myself. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of leading by example uh, with me and all the other climate activists. When we organize, there is no hierarchy. We just do it through consensus. And it is harder and it's more time. But things turn out better because we listen to everybody. And we listen to all the different points of view. And... uh, I love having friends who are climate activists because then we can share our feelings with each other. For example, I told my friends the other day, I was the first time in seven months at the beach. And I was just sitting there hearing the ocean and thinking for the first time ever, actually thinking my kids are never gonna be in a beach because we're gonna have flooding and the ocean is gonna come up all the way to the streets. But beaches take thousands of years to form. So that was the first time which I thought, are my kids ever going to see a beach or be on an island? And these are the type of things that I can share with my friends. And they will say, this is why we have to kick ass harder. (laughs) You know, this is why we have to share how we feel because stories touch people and data doesn't.
0: You said there's power in stories. So let's, let's talk about your story. What is your background? How did you first even start thinking about climate change? So
4: um, my family background is crazy. My mom is Chilean. My dad is Mexican. But I was born in the highlands of Mexico in this small town, about 10,000 people, called San Pedro Tultepec, And that means the town of Tule, which is this plant that you can weave Mm. and make things out of. And that's my, what my grandfather did his whole life, aside from playing music. And so I was raised with this understanding that we had to take care of our surroundings and that we had to thank the earth for everything that it's providing us. I remember when I was younger and my family and I would go in the highlands of central Mexico by the lake to eat lunch.
0: Shia Bastida continues her story on the TED stage.
4: My mom would take out the food that we brought, and I would particularly remember her taking out tortillas. And so the prayer would begin. Thank you to Mother Earth for gifting us with air, water, and the places for our food to grow. Thank you to the hands who planted the seeds. Thank you to the hands who harvested the corn. Thank you to the hands who made the tortillas and for the transportation that it took for all of us to come together and share this beautiful moment. That is how I grew up, with a mindset that we have to thank everything. We have to thank the earth because it gives us everything we need to live. It gives us shelter, food, And all that it asks is that we protect. And to grow up with that love for the earth and that reciprocity and that reciprocal love and understanding was just how my whole world was depicted to me. And when you grow up, you think that everybody thinks the same way that you do. And when you understand that people don't, that's when your bubble gets like, Mm. you know, popped. (laughs) I also remember when I was driving by El Río Lerma. It's the most polluted river in Mexico, and it's right by my hometown. I was driving by it with my dad, and we had to drive with the windows up because the smell would be so bad due to the toxins. And he told me, you know, I used to be able to bathe in this river when I was your age. In one generation, The river went from being a source of life, beauty, and culture to being one of the most neglected places in our community. How does that happen?
0: You're talking about different generations in your family, yours, your father's, your grandfather's. And it makes me think of this question that every generation has, which is, you know, will things be better for the next generation? And most of us think, well, yes, of course they will. But now maybe that's not necessarily true.
4: Yeah, I think that people who I know, like the grandparents struggled to get under feet. The parents did a better job. And now we're here and we're getting this great education. But I don't know if my kids are going to have the childhood that I had. Hmm. How does how do you tell your kid that the planet is ending? And I think that's a question that I've gotten from parents. When do I start telling my kid about the climate crisis? They're asking you that? Yeah, they're asking me that, as if I have an answer. And I, I don't think I have an answer, because I would never want to do that to a kid. And your childhood kind of ends when you find out. Because then you have to do something about it because so much of the hope is placed on us.
0: I mean, that doesn't seem very fair that adults are coming to you and asking you what they can do. I mean, the tables are turned there. That's a humongous responsibility.
4: And that is why we're trying to shift the conversation to intergenerational cooperation. So it's actually about telling adults, we want to work with you. We want you to have internships for us. We want you to open your doors for us to come in and have a say. We cannot waste our time blaming each other. We have to come together and know that we can support each other to move forward. I love this saying that says, We don't inherit the land from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. If we have that thinking every time, then I am thinking right now, I'm going to take care of this earth for my children. And then my children are going to think the same. And it's this very basic notion of you live the place in which you are better than how you found it.
0: That's Shia Bastida. She is a youth climate activist. On the show today, making the psychological shift we need to fight climate change. Because it's gonna take a kind of collective fortitude. And maybe we need more reminders that we all have at least one thing in common, the
2: celestial orb we live on. Hello, I'm sure by the time I get to the end of this sentence, you'll all have figured out that I'm from a place called Planet Earth.
0: (music) This is author and illustrator Oliver Jeffers. A few weeks ago on Earth Day, Oliver shared his poem, An Ode to Living on Earth. And we wanted to end our episode by sharing it with you.
2: Earth is pretty great. It's home to us and germs. Those take a backseat for the time being, because believe it or not, they're not the only thing going on. This planet is also home to cars, Brussels sprouts, those weird fish things that have their own headlights, art, fire, fire extinguishers, Laws, pigeons, bottles of beer, lemons and light bulbs, Pinot Noir and Paracetamol. Ghosts, mosquitoes, flamingos, flowers, the ukulele, elevators and cats, cat videos, the internet, iron beams, buildings and batteries, all ingenuity and bright ideas, all known life, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Pretty much everything we know and ever heard of. It's my favorite place, actually. This small orb floating in a cold and lonely part of the cosmos. You may think you know this planet Earth, but chances are you probably haven't thought about the basics in a while. I thought I knew it. Until, that is, I had to explain the entire place and how it's supposed to work to someone who'd never been here before. It was actually my newborn son I was trying to explain things to. We'd never been parents before, my wife and I, and so treated him like most guests when he arrived home for the first time by giving him the tour. This is where you live, son. This room is where we make food at. This is the room we keep our collection of chairs and so on. It's refreshing explaining how our planet works to a zero-year-old. But after the laughs and once the magnitude that you humans know absolutely nothing settles on you and how little you know either, explaining the whole planet becomes quite intimidating. But I tried anyway. As I walked around those first few weeks narrating the world as I saw it, I began to take notes of the ridiculous things I was saying. Some things are really obvious. Like the planet is made of two parts, land and sea. Some less obvious until you think about them. Like time. Things can sometimes move slowly here on Earth. But more often, they move quickly. So use your time well, it'll be gone before you know it. Or people. People come in all different shapes, sizes, and colors. We may all look different, act different, and sound different, but don't be fooled, we are all people. I didn't want to tell my son the same story of countries that we were told where I was growing up in Northern Ireland, that we were from just a small parish which ignores life outside its immediate concerns. I wanted to try to feel what it was like to see our planet as one system, as a single object, hanging in space. To do this, I would need to switch from flat drawings for books to 3D sculpture for the street, And I'd need almost 200 feet, a New York City block, to build a large-scale model of the Moon, the Earth, and us. This project managed to take place on New York City's Highline Park last winter, on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's mission around the Moon. After its installation, I was able to put on a space helmet with my son and launch, like Apollo 11 did a half century ago, towards the Moon. Two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. We circled around and looked back at us. Beautiful view. that Magnificent sight out here. What I felt was how lonely it was there in the dark. Magnificent desolation. And I was just pretending. The moon is the only object even remotely close to us. And at the scale of this project, where our planet was 10 feet in diameter, Mars, the next planet, will be the size of a yoga ball and a couple of miles away. Consider briefly the story of human civilization on Earth. It tells of the ingenuity, elegance, generous and nurturing nature of a species that is also self-focused, vulnerable and defiantly protective. We the people shield the flame of our existence from the raw and vast elements outside our control, the great beyond. Yet it is always to the flame we look. For all we know, when said as a statement means the sum total of knowledge. But when said another way, for all we know, it means that we do not know at all. This is the beautiful, fragile drama of civilization. We are the actors and spectators of a cosmic play that means the world to us here, but means nothing anywhere else. There is actually only one point in the entire cosmos that is present in all constellations of stars, and that presence is here, planet Earth. Those pictures we have made up for the clusters of stars only make sense from this point of view down here. Their stories only make sense here on Earth, and only something to us. We are creatures of stories. We are the stories we tell. We're the stories we're told. On this planet, there are people. Looking up, and by drawing lines between the lights in the sky, we've attempted to make sense out of chaos. Looking down, we've drawn lines across the land to know where we belong and where we don't. We do mostly forget that these lines that connect the stars and those lines that divide the land live only in our heads. They, too, are stories. We carry out our everyday routines and rituals according to the stories we most believe in, and these days, the story is changing as we write it. There's a lot of fear in this current story, and until recently, the stories that seem to have the most part are those of bitterness of how it had all gone wrong for us individually and collectively. It has been inspiring to watch how the best comes from the worst. How people are waking up in this time of global reckoning to the realization that our connections with each other are some of the most important things we have. But stepping back, for all we've had to lament, we spend very little time relishing the single biggest thing that has ever gone right for us that we are here in the first place, that we are alive at all, that we are still alive. A million and a half years after finding a box of matches, we haven't totally burned the house down yet. The chances of being here are infinitesimal, yet here we are, perils and all. There have never been more people living on Earth, using more stuff. And it's become obvious that many of the old systems we invented for ourselves are obsolete, and we have to build new ones. If it wasn't germs, our collective fire may suffocate us before them As we watch the wheels of industry grind to a halt, the machinery of progress becomes silent, we have the wildest of opportunities to hit the reset button to take a different path. Here we are on Earth. And life on Earth is a wonderful thing. It looks big this Earth, but there are lots of us on here. Seven and a half billion at last count, with more showing up every day. Even so, There is still enough for everyone, if we all share a little. So please, be kind. When you think of it another way, if Earth is the only place where people live, it's actually the least lonely place in the universe. There are plenty of people to be loved by, and plenty of people to love. We need each other. We know that now more than ever. Good night.
0: That's Oliver Jeffers. He's created over a dozen children's books, including the illustrations for one of my kids' favorite books, The Day the Crayons Quit. His latest is The Fate of Fausto. And you can see the beautiful video that goes with his talk at TED.com. Thanks so much for listening to our show about the mindset we need to fight climate change. To learn more about the people who were on the episode, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motisham, James De J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Samarodi and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.